Welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at a historical location that also has a haunted reputation. So come with me as together we enter the strange and creepy world of the unexplained and keep history fun along the way. and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host, Ariel, and on today's episode, I'm going to take you on a ghost tour of the North Head Quarantine Station in Sydney, Australia. This was a listener's suggestion from Carissa, so thank you so much for the suggestion, Carissa. This is my first location in Australia, and I didn't know much about the history of the country, so I had so much fun learning about everything. I got some new reviews on iTunes, and I'd like to thank Cam3902, Softball Gal 3 312, Coco, Kathleen, Lindsay93, and Wild Dog8. Thank you all so much for the reviews. Leaving a starred and typed review on iTunes is a quick and free way to support the show. The more reviews I receive, it will help the show pop up when people search for a new paranormal podcast to try. Even my one-star reviews help, so even if you didn't like the show and you left a one-star review, that's okay with me. Everyone has different tastes, so no hard feelings if you don't like it. And as always, I wanted to give a huge thank you to my wonderful Patreons. I have some new Patreons to thank and give a shout out to, and they are Bert, Ryan, a username known as Unknown Name, Michael, Brandon, and Brenda. Thank you so much, everybody. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make when I have extra time, photos of the historical locations that I talk about on my episodes, and you will get a thank you card and logo sticker in the mail after your first payment goes through. I have a link to my Patreon page down below in the show notes, so if anyone is interested, you can go check it out. For my U.S. listeners and anyone who celebrates the holiday, I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. I was unable to post this episode before Thanksgiving because my old laptop crashed and I had to order a new computer and wait for it to come in the mail. So today I am recording this on my brand new computer and I am so excited because it has really sped up the recording process quite a bit just for me playing with it and getting just this intro in right now. I'm seeing how much faster GarageBand works on this computer. And I wanted to say thank you to my Patreons because of their support. I was able to order this computer and keep my monthly payments affordable for me. So thank you guys again so much. Okay, that's all of my housekeeping for the day, so let's get this episode started. I am very excited to talk to you about today's topic. When I started the research for this episode, I realized that I know very little about the history of Australia, so I had a lot of fun learning all about the overall history of the country. It is also beautiful. I spent a good while looking at photos and videos from Australia, trying to get an overall understanding of the country different geographical regions. If you are like me and don't know much about Australia, then you are in for a fun new history lesson. So let's head to the land down under after our monstrous moment. When I started doing my research for Australia, I knew that I would cover an Australian cryptid for today's Monsters Moment. What I was not expecting was to find out that Australia has their very own version of Bigfoot. 
So today I will be covering the Yowie along with some of his cousins. Much like the notorious Bigfoot in America, the story of the Yowie is not as simple as most people would expect it to be. Once you dive into that rabbit hole, it becomes just as hard to disprove its existence as it is to prove that this creature might actually exist. I talked about Bigfoot in our monstrous moment in episode 14 and the main takeaway from the research I did about Bigfoot was that no one, not even the FBI, could prove 100% that Bigfoot is real or if he is completely fake. And that is the case with the Yowie. Legends of creatures like Bigfoot are found all over the world. So before I talk about the Yowie, let's take a couple of minutes to talk about some of its cousins. These creatures go by different names and look slightly different in appearance depending on where they are located in the world. And these creatures have been known about for centuries by the indigenous peoples who pass down the knowledge of them by oral storytelling and in some cases written accounts. For instance, in America and Canada, they use the names like Bigfoot and Sasquatch. The name Bigfoot is a simple way of explaining that there is a creature out there that leaves huge giant sized tracks in the woods because he has huge feet. The name Sasquatch is the English adaptation of the Salish word Saskets, meaning wild man or hairy man. Bigfoot and Sasquatch sightings have been reported all over the US and Canada, but it's mostly famous for hanging out in the California and Oregon border area. And if you believe in the famous Patterson Gimlin footage, then there has been one caught on camera near the Klamath River in California. When seen, people describe it as being a hairy bipedal creature between six to eight feet tall, with even some reports claiming it to be 12 feet tall. They have huge feet and are usually dark brown or black in color. They have a large cone-shaped head and have a very flat face like an ape. They have extremely long arms and legs, and they have been seen normally in the deepest parts of the forest, although some have been seen crossing roads. The name skunk ape is used for sightings in the southeastern United States. The skunk ape, also known as swamp ape and Florida's Bigfoot, this version of this Bigfoot likes to hang out around the dense swampy areas in the southeastern parts of the U.S. This version of Bigfoot is also ape-like and ranges between 5 and 7 feet tall. But more sightings indicate that these creatures are more on the shorter side compared to the Sasquatch. They are covered in molted reddish-brown hair and are called the skunk ape due to its foul smell that people claim they smell before they see the skunk ape. The first and early European settlers claim to have had run-ins with the skunk ape, as well as Native American folklore that told of a smelly cannibal giant that roams the swamplands. In Asia, they have the Yeti that runs deep in Himalayan folklore. The name Yeti is a loose translation of what the Himalayan people called the wild man of the snow. The Yeti has also been called the abominable snowman, and while that might sound like a cuter name, don't be fooled, the Yeti is not something that you want to mess with. While there are stories of Bigfoot and Sasquatch attacking humans, they are normally thought of as peaceful creatures and they just want to be left alone and will hide from you rather than attack you on the spot. The Yeti can become violent and is more likely to attack you if you come across one. Once again, a Yeti is described as a large bipedal ape-like creature. It is covered in either brown, gray, or white hair, and it has sharp teeth. 
Some accounts have the Yeti chasing hikers away from the mountain trails. Some deaths on the mountain have been blamed on the Yeti. In Russia, they also have stories of their own Yeti that lives in the wilderness of Siberia with native accounts from nomadic tribes. And that's not even all of them. There are other accounts from all over the world. So now that we have visited some of the different type of Bigfoot type creatures, let's talk about Australia's Yowie. Much like Bigfoot and the Yeti, the term Yowie was not the original name for this creature. Long before European settlers came to modern-day Australia, the aboriginal tribes knew of this beast for 30,000 years. There are a few names that they used for this creature, like the Yahoos and Devil Devil, but the most common aboriginal name I could find was the Quinkin. There are cave paintings located at the Quinkin Rock art site that might actually depict a Quinkin. In these paintings, the Quinkin is depicted as being taller than humans and even other animals in the area. They have elongated legs and arms, large feet, and their heads are smaller than what you would expect for a body type that size. The paintings also show the creature as having bulging eyes and a wide gaping mouth. The art also shows them being either aggressive or even elusive towards humans. There are many legends of the Yowie that have been passed down through oral accounts. There is a legend about Yowies who would steal from the people of the Guganda region in what is now the area called New South Wales. In this story, the Yowies would invade the humans' camps at night, stealing food and other goods from them. It is said that the best hunters of the tribe would chase after the Yowies, but the Yowies moved with such speed that they could never catch them. Fast forward to the late 1700s and sightings of the Yowie began for the new European settlers with hundreds of eyewitness accounts. Just like its cousins, the Yowie has its own unique descriptions. Standing at about five to nine feet tall, it has a red gaping mouth with two large fangs. It has long talon-like claws and it has either brown or reddish brown fur. Its nose is also wide and flat. The Yowie is also said to be the most vicious of all of the Sasquatch species. It has been known for tearing the heads right off of kangaroos and dogs. It is said that they also attack humans more often than a Bigfoot or even the Yeti. But other accounts have them being quiet and shy. In the 1970s, the Yowie sparked national media attention when a group of the Australian Air Force surveying team discovered large human-like tracks on Sentinel Mountain. This sent the papers and news outlets into a frenzy that sparked a newfound fascination with the Yowie. In the late 1970s, a man named Rex Gilroy founded the Yowie Research Center. The center claims to have over 3,000 Yowie sightings. People got so obsessed with the idea that the Yowie could exist that in 1976, the Queen Bin Festival Committee offered a $100,000 reward if someone could bring in a Yowie dead or alive. Luckily for the Yowie, no one was able to find one to bring it in for the reward money. Today, much like in America and Canada, people in Australia go out looking for the Yowie. Reported sightings and tracks seen just adds to the evidence that there might actually be a Yowie hiding in the wilderness. Just in May of this year, 2021, the news show called Sunrise discussed the Yowie and talked to a Yowie expert, Dane Harrison. He goes out on expeditions looking for the Yowie, and he has been researching the Yowie for over 25 years, and he managed to capture some footage of what he believes are two Yowies with his thermal camera. The creatures are around nine feet tall, and Harrison and thinks that this could be the best evidence to date that the Yowies actually exist. I have seen this and it is really interesting and it does look like they caught a Yowie on camera and I have a link to that down below if you guys would like to see it. 
With the way technology is getting better and better, I think that it is going to be easier to prove that things like the paranormal and creatures like the Yowie actually exist. If you don't believe, then the one thing you can't ignore is that there are legends of Harry Wildman all over the world, and they already had these legends long before we could easily share stories around the world. And that is what I find to be so fascinating about the legend of the Yowie. Sadly, we've heard the word quarantine a lot over the last year or so, and while we are lucky to have the power of modern medicine on our side to help us, this was not the case for thousands of years. People would die from all kinds of diseases, and some diseases doctors didn't even know how to treat, let alone how to stop them from spreading. During the 1300s, the bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death, swept through Europe and Asia, killing around an estimated 200 million people. No one at the time understood this disease, and it left doctors at a loss to know how to help patients, let alone how to keep others from getting it. But there were some who tried. In Italy, the country set up efforts to try to keep plague out of their coastal cities and ordered ships that were arriving in Venice that were coming from known infected ports. They were required to sit at anchor for 40 days to see if any of the crew fell ill. If no one on the ship got sick after 40 days, they were allowed to come ashore. They named this process quarantine, and that is why we still use this name today. By the late 1800s, doctors started becoming more aware of the different types of diseases, and while they still didn't have all the answers or the right medication to cure people, the idea of quarantining someone before they enter a new country became one of the most important steps to keep diseases from other countries from spreading in their country. And while Australia was still not its own country during the time of the North Head Quarantine Station, it was still an important stop for people who wanted to get onto the island of Australia because Australia, like I just said, is an island, and a lot of the people who lived on the island did not have natural immunity to the diseases that would be coming from Europe. So before we start talking about the North Head Quarantine Station, let's take a couple minutes to look at the history of Australia as a whole before we start talking about what some people believe is the most haunted place in all of Australia. Australia is a favorite tourist destination for many. Since summer south of the equator begin in December, it is common for Europeans to travel to Australia to take a break from their cold winter weather. The five largest cities are Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide. Sydney is known for its large harbor, the Sydney Opera House, and the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Australia has miles of beautiful coastline with white sandy beaches. Bondi Beach near Sydney is probably the most well-known. The Great Barrier Reef is one of the seven wonders of the natural world. It is the world's largest coral reef system made up of more than 2,900 individual reefs and 900 islands. People also enjoy exploring national parks 
like the Uluru Catatula National Park in the outback of the Northern Territory. The Uluru monolith is about 600 million years old. And of course, Australia is famous for two unique marsupials, koala bears and kangaroos. The first people to inhabit Australia were the Aboriginal people. It is believed that they migrated here in about 60,000 BC from South Asia using large canoes. They invented the boomerang in 8,000 BC, but not all the Aboriginal Australians were hunter-gatherers. Some planted and irrigated farms while others set up fisheries. They are also well known for their rock art and a unique instrument, the didgeridoo. The didgeridoo might be the oldest instrument in the world. It is classified as a wooden brass instrument. Brass means the sound that is made by the buzzing of your lips, like you do for a trumpet or trombone. A didgeridoo is made from the limbs of a tree trunk that has been hollowed out by termites. The trunk is then cleaned out by an iron stick that has been heated or by hot coals. The longer the length, the deeper the sound the didgeridoo makes. And if you're still confused on what a didgeridoo sounds like, you heard it in the intro, but I'll play it again because it sounds like this. It is possible that a Portuguese ship found the Australian continent in 1522, but this cannot be proven. It would also make sense that Asian sailors possibly discovered Australia at some time. However, the first documented sighting of the land was by a ship from the Dutch East India Trading Company in 1606. However, the land was not claimed by Europeans until Captain James Cook of the Endeavour claimed the eastern part of Australia for the British Crown in 1770. At the time, there were hundreds of thousands of Aboriginal people living on the island. The first British colony was founded in 1788 in Sydney by Captain Arthur Phillip. It was also the start of the British penal colony at New South Wales. Botany Bay was suggested to be the site of the first penal colony. The bay is just south of Sydney Harbour. The British had big problems with overcrowding in their prisons, so at first they sent many of their convicts to American colonies. But that ended when the American Revolution started in 1776. Most of the convicts had committed petty crimes since serious offenses like murder and assault were punishable by death. Phillips arrived with a fleet of 11 ships on January 26, 1788. There were 730 convicts on the ships. 570 were men and 160 were women. There were also 250 free settlers who were mostly Marines. Phillips' mission was not very well financed or supported by the British Crown, and the quality of the soldiers and farming skills of the free settlers were poor. Also, the land around Botany Bay had poor soil for farming and little fresh water. The harbor was also small and not well suited for large ships. So Phillips chose Sydney Cove for his settlement instead. The colony struggled for the first few years, but did manage to survive. The colony was named New South Wales. Penal colonies continued to be established in New South Wales and in Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania today. Tasmania became a colony in 1825. Another colony, Western Australia, began in 1830 with free immigrants, but then convicts were brought in from 1850 to 1868. The colony of South Australia never received convicts. This colony began in 1838. 
Convicts were forced to build the jails themselves. About a total of 165,000 convicted men, women, and children as young as 13 were shipped to Australia until they stopped in 1868. Convicts were not only building their own jails, but they also built government buildings, roads, and bridges. In the early 1900s, agriculture expanded as more convicts were brought to Australia. Free settlers in Tasmania grew grain to sell to New South Wales. Sheep were also brought into the island for fine wool because the demand for wool was high at this time. The free settlers began to increase in the 1820s, and the majority of them were people with money, which allowed them to obtain land and build fine houses. They became a higher class than convicts who became free after serving their sentences. Sheep were a main part of the economy by the 1850s. Even though there were hundreds of sheep stations all over New South Wales, the human population was low. The seaport cities saw the most population growth. Thousands who came to the island during this time came as prisoners, but some managed to escape. Escaped convicts were known as bushrangers. Some are part of folklore in Australia. Ned Kelly, known as the Australian Robin Hood, and his gang eluded police for years. He was eventually caught and executed for murder in 1880. Moondyne Joe escaped fundamental prison many times, and there is an annual festival in his honor in the town of Tudier. The discovery of gold in New South Wales in 1851 and then in the southeastern area of Victoria brought even more people to Australia. Victoria produced over one-third of the world's gold from 1852 to 1870. Soon, exporting gold to Britain became more valuable than wool. Australia really began to develop during this time and met the needs of the increasing population. Agriculture expanded even more, as did transportation and manufacturing. Sydney and Melbourne saw the most growth out of all of the port cities in shipping and manufacturing. In 1900, the British Parliament passed a legislation allowing Australia to become a commonwealth. Australian voters approved their constitution and the Commonwealth of Australia became official on January 1, 1901. There were six colonies at this time and they were renamed states. Australia's population was close to 4 million by this time. The early settlers living on the large island soon realized that it was free from the epidemic diseases that Europe dealt with. They also recognized that they were vulnerable to being infected with diseases that were brought by passengers on board ships coming from Europe. New South Wales passed the first Quarantine Act in 1832. At this time, there was a bad cholera epidemic in Europe. The epidemic started in 1829 and lasted until 1851. It was decided that a quarantine station was needed before people were allowed to enter the port city of Sydney. North Head was chosen as a quarantine site, naming it North Head Quarantine Station. It officially opened in 1833, and the other colonies followed suit and started their own stations at their own ports of entry. The location of North Head was chosen because North Head was isolated, ships could anchor there, and there was a fresh water supply by a spring. The land was also part of Aboriginal history in the Sydney area. The land was used by medicine men and women healers for spiritual ceremonies and rituals. Aboriginal historical artifacts have been found here, which include rock engravings, rock art, burial sites, and middens. And a midden is a collection of shells and bones left from the food that they ate. The first interaction between Aboriginal people and the first fleet led by Captain Phillips occurred here in 1788. 
The Q station started with just tents to shelter the quarantined. Over time, permanent buildings were built and the number of staff increased. The quality of the buildings also improved because immigrants that were coming by this time were more wealthy. All ships were required to dock at the Q station if they had any sick on board. Even just one ill person required the ship to fly the yellow flag, signaling that people on board were in need of quarantine. When people arrived at the Q station, they were met at the wharf by nurses and doctors who would divide people into two groups, the healthy and the sick. The sick would go up the hill to the hospital. The main diseases that they were concerned about were the bubonic plague, cholera, typhus, and smallpox. In 1917 and 1918, the Spanish influenza was the most prominent disease. In addition to the hospital area, there was an isolation precinct. Healthy people were separated into first, second, and third class based on the ticket that they purchased for the ship. There were separate precincts for each class, each with its own residence and dining hall, and not surprisingly, the third-class precinct was the closest to the isolation precinct. The first-class accommodations were very nice, and families could stay in individual cabins. The second and third classes, however, stayed in dormitories. Up to 60 people slept together, which made it easier for diseases to spread if someone did become ill. Passengers and crew members had to stay at the queue station for 40 days. Once the sick arrived at the hospital, the first thing they would have to do is to go to the showers to be disinfected. The shower was a combination of water, disinfectant, and carbolic acid. A few days after showering, a person's top layer of skin would actually peel off. Tiny peepholes were drilled into the sides of the corrugated metal shower cubicles so staff could watch and make sure that people were actually showering. The sick were either housed in the small hospital or the dormitories in the isolation precinct. The nurses and doctors cared for the sick the best they could. Unfortunately, it was estimated that over 600 people died at the Q station. There are two sandstone outcroppings on the property. Some of the people quarantined here carved into the soft rock to document that they stayed here. There are more than 1,600 carvings. Some are simply initials or names, others contain more information, and some are even short poems. The Q station was in operation for over 100 years until they closed its doors on March 16, 1984. After the closure, the ownership of the Q station was transferred from the Commonwealth to the state government and was reserved as part of the Sydney Harbor National Park. This worked out for a little bit, but after 10 years, the park realized that they could not keep up with the funds to keep the buildings from falling apart. So in 2006, the Mollen Group signed a lease with the national parks to restore the buildings and use it as a historical tourist destination. Today, the Q Station offers several experiences to visitors. There are historical tours, wildlife tours, and nighttime ghost tours. The website advertises a variety of overnight packages, such as the romantic getaway, stay and save, ghostly getaway, and stay and dine. They also offer kids parties, a sculpture exhibit, and returning soon, the queue on Sundays, which features live music. The station can even be used as a wedding venue. While all the daytime stuff sounds like fun, I hope you notice that they do ghost tours and they even offer a nighttime ghostly package. That's because the North Head Q station is the most haunted place in all of Australia. Long before the Q station became a historical landmark, people told stories of the hauntings and paranormal activity that occur here. Those stories intensified after the site began operating as a museum and event center. There are tons of paranormal claims that happen here. From ghostly figures appearing in photographs to full-bodied apparitions, the Q station is not a place that most people would want to be after the sun goes down. And yet, there are
are a number of brave souls who pay to go on nightly ghost tours and some even dare stay the night. And once the ghost tour started, some guests weren't ready for the paranormal activity that they were about to endure. The Q station covers 30 hectares, and for my American listeners, that's about 74 acres. I had to look up a hectare because I'd actually never heard of a hectare before, but as you can imagine, this is a large property and we have a lot of ground to cover. So there are a lot of full-bodied apparitions that hang out in various places throughout the property. So for this property, I thought the best thing I could do is take you on a tour from building to building. So I hope that you have your imaginary walking shoes on. This is gonna be a long one. Starting off with the hospital wing. Inside the hospital wing, there is a ghost known as the matron. She has been seen wearing her matron's uniform and she likes to walk between the three original beds that are still located in the wing. She seems to be tending to invisible patients. The matron also hates it when people criticize anything in the room. There is a story about a guest who was on a ghost tour and he said that he didn't understand why the historical team let the room get so dusty. Within about a minute after saying this, he became violently ill, so much so that he threw up all over his shirt. He was leaving the hospital when he was on his way out the door. He felt something grab a hold of his shirt and pull hard. Many people believe that this was the matron who was angry that he criticized her work. Another claim is people hear snoring from one of the beds. Also, the imprint of a body laying on one of the original beds has been seen. EVPs have also been captured in this room, along with strange smells and weird light anomalies. Up next, we are going to move to the old laundry room. Today, this space is used for conferences, and it can be transformed into a small theater. The ghost of a man named William Heggs has been seen in the laundry room. Most tour guides think that this ghost hangs out here because in the early 1900s, the stables were located right next to the laundry room. Most of the tour guides thinks that this ghost hangs out here because in the early 1900s, the stables were located right next to the laundry room. Heggs was found with a bullet wound to his skull and a gun in his hand near the stables. The coroner deemed it a suicide, but looking back into historical records, there were some discrepancies in his autopsy. Because of this, some believe that they were covering up foul play. The other reason that people started to question the coroner's decision is because Heggs' ghost started showing up in the laundry room. When he was seen, he was not only found having a bullet wound in his head, he also had one in his torso. Mediums believe that Heggs' spirit lingers here because he was actually murdered and his spirit is not at rest. Heggs' apparition has been seen multiple times and he also likes to play with the light switches inside the laundry room. He will turn off the lights at random times, plunging guests into darkness, or he will turn on lights during ghost tours when the lights were supposed to be off. He likes to mess with people too. Another interesting thing is that after Heggs turns on or off a light, he becomes territorial over the light switch. Some people have claimed that when they went to the light switch to flip on the switch, it feels like they have run into an invisible force field preventing them from reaching out to touch the light switch. 
He also likes to pop his head out from doorways and stare at the group until notice. Once he's noticed, he creepily slides it out of sight. The hospital kitchen also has activity. There is a shadow figure seen in this area, and this shadow figure is said to be aggressive. He has been known to knock over guests. One day, a tour guide had just entered the room with his group when he suddenly felt a cold blast of air from across the room. He turned to see a shadow figure rushing him. It hit him with such force that it knocked him backwards, and fortunately, a guest witnessed this happening and was able to catch the tour guide before he hit the floor. Let's move on to the third-class dining hall. The dining hall was built in the location used for local Aboriginal burying ceremonies. This area has a lot of emotional feeling attached to it. People have suddenly felt bouts of great sadness that cause them to start crying, or they feel like they are being watched. People who are in the building alone have reported the sound of footsteps, whispering, chanting, and talking. There is a little boy who has been seen in late 1800s clothing. He has been seen running through the dining hall, playing by himself, but he also has been seen in the corner of the dining room crying. When people approach him to see if he is all right, he disappears. Shadow figures have also been seen here. Some have been seen running through the room and then they vanish when they get to the other side. Downstairs in the basement kitchen, people have been touched and had their clothing tugged on by unseen hands. There is also a story of a tour guide who was sitting on one of the kitchen tables when suddenly she felt an icy hand grab her ankle and give it a quick tug. This kitchen has a dumbwaiter system and there is a creepy story attached to it. Supposedly, you can see an apparition of a young woman in a pink dress. She appears as if she is standing inside. In one scary instance, a guest was standing in front of the dumbwaiter with his back to it, when suddenly the girl in the pink dress appeared and put her hands around the guest's throat. The guest struggled for a few seconds before being able to fight off the entity. By the time the guest had turned around to see what had been strangling him, she had vanished. While the guest himself did not see the woman in the pink dress, the rest of the tour group did. They witnessed the whole thing, and visible bruising were supposedly left around the guest's neck. The hauntings at the Q station are so notorious that it even caught the attention of Ghost Hunters International back in 2010. While they were investigating the dining hall, the team recorded the sounds of disembodied footsteps, banging, and shuffling. As these sounds persisted, loud footsteps seemed to lure them down into the basement kitchen. Up next is the luggage disinfectant chamber. A ghost of an eight-year-old Irish immigrant girl named Mary Ann McSweeney likes to hang out here. She passed away of a high fever in 1837 when the quarantine station was still mostly a tent city. Mary Ann is a bit of a poltergeist. She enjoys singing, moving objects, tugging on people's clothing, and making loud tapping and banging sounds. She has also been known to hold people's hands. People have reported feeling a sudden child-sized icy hand in theirs. She also likes people with fancy shoes for some reason. There have been instances where someone on the tour is listening to the tour guide when they suddenly feel like something is on their shoe. When they look down, they are surprised to see a little girl in a pink dress with red hair and pigtails messing with their shoes. When they ask her to stop, she looks up at them and then vanishes. There have also been instances where guests go to take a step and they trip. 
They claim it felt like there was a small child or animal in their way, but when they look around on the ground, there's nothing there. Marianne also has a friend that she likes to hang out with, a six-year-old boy named Isaac. Isaac likes to play pranks on the guest, and his apparition has been seen with Marianne running and playing outside. Next on our tour is the inhalation chamber. An inhalation chamber is a nicer name for a gas chamber. This was used during the Spanish flu epidemic. Several people at a time would go into the chamber, then a fine mist of zinc sulfate would fill the room. Doctors would let them breathe in the zinc sulfate for about five minutes and then let them out. It was believed that zinc sulfate would cure and prevent people from catching the Spanish flu, but we now know that wasn't the case. The main spirits inside the inhalation chamber are soldiers from World War I. At the end of this war, military members were returning home from all over the globe, and they were bringing the Spanish flu with them. Many soldiers became ill on the journey back to Australia, and by the time they arrived at the quarantine station, they were close to death. There were so many people coming down with the Spanish flu that they needed overflow tents at the Q station. Soldiers in World War I uniforms have been seen walking around the area. People who have entered the chamber have reported the feeling of the floor rocking back and forth as if they are at sea. This has caused some people to become seasick. Mediums believe that people feel this way because it is the ghosts of the soldiers that are trying to communicate their last moments with you. The main entity in this chamber is a ghost named Jim. Jim is a light-sensitive spirit. He doesn't like lights to be on so that people can see him. When Jim is seen, people describe him as a tall shadow with a white cap on. He also has on a long trench coat. The description of his clothing fits an Australian cavalry soldier during World War I. Also, when he makes his presence known, people claim to smell horses and hay. Jim is a friendly spirit. He doesn't do much to scare anyone. He likes his space to be respected, but he's not mean. Tour guides believe the reason Jim doesn't like light or to be seen is because he has a disfigured face, probably due to a war injury. When people do see his face, they say that he is missing an eye and one of his cheeks has been torn and was poorly stitched up. When I did research of the paranormal activity at the Q station, I watched a bunch of videos and read many articles. One of the videos was from a YouTuber named Amy's Crypt, and I have a link to her channel down below along with all of my sources that I used for this episode. But she toured the Q station and she was with a tour guide named Chris. Chris told Amy about an experience that he had one day on the property, and it's kind of sad. He said that he was walking past the inhalation chamber, and he noticed that there was a kid sitting in the middle of the room. He went inside to see if she needed any help finding her parents, and the little girl asked Chris what his name was, and he replied, Chris, and then the little girl said, what about that guy behind you? Chris turned around to see no one there but he noticed that the girl was looking above his head as if she were looking at a taller person near the door. Chris asked her to describe what she was seeing, and she described the exact features of Jim. Then Chris asked her to describe his face, because he had never seen his face before, and she said that she couldn't see part of it because he was turned away. Chris asked the little girl if she wouldn't mind asking Jim to turn around, and she actually did. She said, Jim, can you turn around? And when he did, unfortunately, the little girl replied, gee, he's ugly. And that made me really sad. Kids are very unfiltered, so I'm sure she didn't mean anything that mean by it. But still, that was kind of sad. So if you're ever at the Q station and you meet Jim, make sure to be really nice to him. The caretaker's cabin is said to be haunted by a poltergeist named Sam. Sam has claimed one of the rooms in the cabin as his own. He is an aggressive spirit and does not like people being in his room. And he also does 
does not like people being near the bathtub in the bathroom. When people see or sense Sam's presence, they report a strong smell of alcohol. Sam likes to make lights flicker, knock paintings off the walls, move objects, and he has been known to throw objects at people. Guests who enter this cabin have also reported the feeling of being pushed and grabbed by unseen hands. When I was watching Amy's Crypt, their tour guide Chris told of a crazy paranormal encounter that one woman had while she was on one of their tours. The tour group had entered the cabin and people were walking around doing their ghost investigations. One woman was taking a lot of pictures using her flash. She went through the cabin into all of the rooms, continuously taking pictures. After a while, everyone went outside except for the woman taking pictures. While the group was outside waiting for her, they suddenly heard her scream and then they heard footsteps running through the house. The front door flew open and she came tumbling out, falling to the ground. She got up, spun around to yell at who she thought had pushed her and then she froze. Then the door slammed in her face. Shaken, she told the group that something in heavy work boots had rushed her and chased her through the house. The door opened on its own when she reached the threshold and something shoved her on her shoulder blades, making her fall forward out the door. She was furious because she thought it was her friend messing with her. When she turned around, she saw a man in overalls and heavy work boots. Then he ominously cracked his knuckles at her and slammed the door in her face. That is a really scary paranormal experience. I feel so bad for that woman if it's true. The shower room has some really creepy claims as well. Remember when I told you about the peepholes? Well, ghosts love to look through them at passersby. Many people have reported an eyeball staring at them. Ghosts have also been known to pop their heads over the shower cubicles and stare at you. Many apparitions have been seen in the shower room, from nurses to doctors to patients to children. Some people have even reported seeing horses standing in the shower room. No one really understands why people are seeing horses and there's not really an explanation for it. A few of these ghosts are quite the pranksters. They enjoy hiding around the tops of the shower cubicles and they have been known for pulling people's hair and stealing sunglasses and hats right off of people's heads. It's also not that surprising that most people report the feeling of being watched. There is one shower that is haunted by an interesting entity. From what I could find online, they identify it as being the third shower on the left, but I don't know which aisle they mean and from the left of either like from the entrance or from the back because there are a couple of rows of showers but anyway apparently in the third shower from the left it is haunted by a woman with bluish skin wearing a white hospital gown with blood trickling down the front when seen inside the shower she is crying and if she notices you she will ask you if you know where her baby is before she disappears she only likes to show herself to women and she also appears in front of pregnant women and she has also been heard crying when people pass by the shower room. Other claims in the shower room include EVPs, loud bangs, tapping on the corrugated metal, voices, footsteps, and also children singing. Up next, we're gonna go check out the morgue. When the morgue was built, it was considered to be the best in the world. That was because there's a laboratory directly next to the morgue with a pass-through window in the connecting wall. After an autopsy was performed, the organs could immediately be handed to the lab techs so that they could study them. They were able to quickly identify what disease the person was inflicted with, and this helped the whole team manage the quarantine groups better, and the medical staff knew what diseases they were dealing with. The morgue is haunted by an entity known as Mr. Slimy. Some of the tour guides call him Slimeball. 
When he appears, he is usually wearing a smart-looking suit, and he has known to get a little handsy with the ladies. Actually, not a little, a lot handsy with the ladies. That's why they call him Mr. Slimy. Women on historical and ghost tours have reported getting their butts pinched and their boobs grabbed by unseen hands. And also, he has been known to play with women's hair and even lick their ears, which, when I heard this, that grossed me out so much. <laughs> if the afterlife doesn't have an HR department, they need one. The Q station now allows people to spend the night, and the area for overnight accommodations used to be the old nurse's station. Many people have reported seeing apparitions of nurses wandering throughout the building. These spirits are supposedly kind, and they even like to tend to people who are spending the night. People who have spent the night in the bunks claim that they have felt as if they are being tucked into bed, and some have even felt an icy hand on their wrist as if someone is taking their pulse. These nurses are also believed to be protecting the guest from a darker entity. This building is also a notorious spot for a darker energy. Some people have claimed that there is a demon that lives inside the old nurse's station. The reason for this is because people have claimed to see a man in a business suit with cloven hooves wandering around. This entity has also been seen as a solid black mass that changes shape and size. It is said that the entity likes to feed off of people's fear, and he does this by showing people their worst nightmares. There's a claim of a man who had entered one of the rooms to unpack for the night, when suddenly all of the bedposts and frames of the bunk beds started to slither like snakes. This scared him so bad that he ran outside and refused to go back in for his belongings. Other people who have stayed the night have reported seeing the black shape moving around on the ceiling. They often hear scratching inside their rooms, banging sounds down the hall, footsteps inside and outside the rooms, voices and phantom smells like the sudden smell of perfume. Many people believe that the ghost nurses tried to keep this evil spirit at bay to keep everyone on the tour safe. There are so many paranormal claims at the Q station that I could not cover everything. This place is super haunted. People that are just walking between the buildings have reported shadow figures running past them into the darkness and disappearing. The apparitions of children have been seen all over the property. Ghost tour guides have estimated that there are up to 20 child spirits at the station. Some guests have suddenly become sick or overcome with emotion and they have to leave the property. People have also experienced equipment malfunctions and battery drains. The most famous claim is that the Q station is the best place to capture a ghost in a photograph. Many people have taken pictures not expecting to find anything, but have gone back to look and found all kinds of apparitions in them. North Head Quarantine Station is a unique historical site. It played an important part in Australia's history. And while it was tragic for some, today it is a place for many people to enjoy but it still has a spooky vibe, and that's why many people visit the Q station. Thank you all so much for joining me today as we discover the history and hauntings of the Q station. I had so much fun covering this episode. I hope I didn't butcher too many names. I tried really hard to make sure that I knew how to say a lot of these names in advance, 
But if I did, well, I tried my best. But I hope that you guys had fun learning about all the history of Australia. I'd love to do another episode in Australia. So if anyone has any other historical paranormal places for me to check out, please send me an email and I would love to cover it. And I just wanted to thank Carissa once again for suggesting the North Head Quarantine Station. The next listener suggestion episode I'm working on right now is from Tracy and she suggested some place in northern Maine to cover for the next historically haunted location. So I'm really excited. I haven't decided what I'm going to do just yet. I've been looking into a bunch of different haunted places. Tracy, if you're listening and you know of a place that would be a full episode, you can email me and let me know. But someplace haunted in northern Maine is what the next episode is going to be and I'm very excited to make that one as well. If you have a listener suggestion episode that you would like me to cover, please email me at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. You can also get in contact with me through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Links to all of my social media handles along with my Patreon page are all down below in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I hope that you guys stay healthy and safe and have a good holiday season. I will see you guys back here real soon on Historically Haunted. Bye, everyone.